Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Adhered Apologetics. Glad you're joining us today. Uh, today I have Bram Rawlings with me. We're going to be reviewing his debate on the resurrection with uh, popular atheist TikToker Captain Dadpool. So Bram, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm really pumped for this. Um, so today, uh, Bram is a younger Christian apologist. It's actually fun having someone younger than me on the channel because that doesn't happen too often. Um, and you did a debate with the atheist TikToker Captain Dadpool, who has hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok on the resurrection. Uh, so today we're going to be reviewing the debate, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But before we get into the debate, Bram, in case people don't know who you are because it's your first time on my channel, do you want to just tell us like who you are, what you do, stuff like that? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm basically a Christian who happens to have a love for apologetics, especially in the uh, like the, the historical type of apologetics, defending things like gospel reliability. Um, I've done a lot of work on the resurrection, um, and I have a TikTok, which I've you can see if you. My, it's hard to see. It's right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's there. You're pointing in the right yeah. direction somewhat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's at Brim Rollings. It's not 81. That's a typo. It's actually at Brian Rawlings 1. So, um, yeah, you can check me out there. I post a lot of uh, historical apologetics on there. Um, I don't do as much philosophy just because that's not my strong suit, but yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you, Bram, and I really enjoyed listening to this debate. It's linked down below. Um, we're going to be playing clips as we go. It was just on the resurrection, and I appreciate it because you, like, you know your stuff on the resurrection stuff, which was really fun to see as this debate progressed. Um, so do you have any, like, preliminary thoughts you want to say before we start playing some of these clips and talking about what went on? Yeah, um, the debate was how long ago? Like, a few months ago? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I've learned a lot since then. I've changed a lot of my positions. Um you know, reviewing some of the par some parts of the debate kind of make me cringe now. So I'm going to be not only critiquing um, Rick, which is his real name, um, but myself as well. And um, my goal here is to not make this, you know, a, a Rick slander or anything like that. Um, it, it's going to be I'm going to try to be as fair as possible. So, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate your um, honesty because I think like as we get into these debates, like it's super important like to think about like the purpose of the debate and like reviewing it. It's really should just yeah. be about like trying to find the best of both sides and using that to move forward um, and seeing what we have to say. Um, so you ready to get this thing rolling, Bram? Yeah, let's go. All right, let's do this. We got a bunch of clips queued up. Um, so here's the first one. One second. Mark says Jesus died on the day of Passover meal. John says it was the day before the Passover meal, which was the day of preparation. Mark says that Jesus died and not at nine in the morning. John says he wasn't condemned to die until until noon. Did Jesus carry his cross all the way until Golgotha by himself, or did Simon help him? Did both both the bank robber bank robbers did both the robbers mock Jesus, or did only one of them come to his defense? Did the temple curtains rip before or after Jesus' death? Who went to the tomb on the third day? Was it Mary Magdalene alone, or was it Mary and other women? Was the stone rolled away from the tomb when they got there, or was it not? What did they see in the tomb? Was it one man, two men, or an angel? Were the disciples instructed to stay in Jerusalem to meet Jesus, or were they to go to Galilee? Did the disciples stay in Jerusalem, or did they immediately travel to Galilee? Did the women tell people about it what they said, or did they tell not tell anyone what they saw? That answer is. It depends on which gospel you are reading, as they do not agree with each other on these details. I would argue that this was based uh, that this is basically the gospels were not meant to be taken literally. Uh, I'm gonna skip this part because I think I'm missing. I'm losing time. Now let's talk. So this is interesting. This is the first thing I pulled up um, yep. because if if you listen to this debate, um, this is a little bit like in this debate you call um, Ricky out because you say that he's using like a top down approach, meaning like he's just attacking like um, like general reliability concerns. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because your face, your your case, if you watch the debate, is like a minimal facts almost approach, um, and it's just super interesting. Like that's, a, I would call it like a mm -hmm. moderate facts. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, but like a moderate facts, like it's just interesting because he like, and it's very. I love Bart Ehrman. I don't agree with him, but it's very Bart Ehrman esque is yeah. what he's saying. Um, so what do you think of this this first clip, Bram? Well, uh, what's funny is that if you read this book by Bart Ehrman, in one of the pages, it's a. Uh, well, I just lost my bookmark, but whatever. Basically, he's getting it straight from Ehrman. And you don't even need to re read the book to find that out. You can go to any debate that Ehrman has on the resurrection. He's pulling a lot of these <clears throat> straight from Ehrman. Um, so there was definitely a familiar familiar ring to it. Um, so I have a few things to say about this. One, in the debate, yes, I did. I, did, um, I, I pointed out that he was as you said, kind of attacking the general reliability, whereas 
for my case, you can grant that all these are true and still have a resurrection. That that was kind of the point of my case. I was defending facts that, that stood um, whether those were contradictions or not. And I think I called that like a top-down approach. Um, you know, I... I called his, I called Rick's approach like a top-down mm -hmm. approach yeah. where I was starting from a base set of facts. Um, however, it, it, you know, if you're going to, if I had, if I had more time to talk with Rick, I would definitely spend more time defending the general reliability of the Gospels. Because, um, you know, you know, not even as a question of inerrancy, but just a, of basic historical reliability. Um, I had all his alleged contradiction contradictions written down forgot to print mm -hmm. them out so i can't get them now but um a few of them that come to mind like did simon of cyrene carry jesus's cross or did jesus carry his cross john says that um jesus carried his cross uh mark says that simon of cyrene carried it except neither of them say that you know simon or or jesus carried it all the way most likely what's happening is that um, John just omitted Simon out of his narrative um, because he didn't have any use for him. As Richard Balcom has argued um, in a great book he's written, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Simon seems to be serving in the synoptics, especially in the Mark, in, in Mark, where it says Simon and his sons Alexander and Rufus, as someone who the early church could look to to say, yes, this is an eyewitness, you know, that's a great book. That's a different discussion. But, um, I mean, the way I would harmonize these, just base, you know, this is not a stretch at all. This is what classical historians do, is just to say that, you know, Jesus carried the cross at, at the start. It became way too heavy to carry because he had just been flogged. So the Roman authorities pull aside Simon of Cyrene, and he carries it the rest of the way. That's not implausible at all. Um, without spending too much time on this one point, I think the most important alleged contradiction that he brings up is whether John d dates the crucifixion to the Passover or not. Mm. If John does date the, uh, the crucifixion to the Passover, whereas the synoptics date it to Friday, Rick's absolutely right. That would be a huge historical error, whatever his reasons for changing it or not. It would seriously affect you know, the reliability of John. But, um, as, I mean, as Blomberg has pointed out, we don't have, I don't think we actually have any reason, despite popular belief, that John changes or even places Jesus' crucifixion on the Passover. Um, in Mark 13, we, we get like a, a Passover meal, and there's very good, strong evidence that what we're reading in John 13 is, a, is, um, is an account of the Passover meal. The controversy is when you get to chapter 18, verse 28, and it says that some of the Pharisees stood outside the courtyard so as, on a Friday so as not to be defiled for the Passover. But um, as Blomberg has argued, since we already know that, that um, John understands that the meal in chapter 13 was a Passover meal, what is most likely happening here is that the Pharisees are standing outside um, the courtyard so that they can um, keep themselves from being defiled from other meals throughout the whole Passover week, not just the Passover day, which we have sufficient um, rabbinic, Mishnaic uh, evidence for. So that's what mm -hmm. I would say. Um, one more here, if it's not, uh, if I'm not taking up too much time. Um, the I think Mark says that Jesus was crucified at three, John at six, or... Um, I hope I got Mark's dating right. It could be, I can't quite remember there. But um, as many scholars have argued, Ben Witherington, Craig Keener, uh, or maybe not Keener, but also Blomberg, is that um, given the way that time was reckoned in the ancient world and in, in first century Palestine, people rounded up all the time. Um, it's very possible that John, uh, that Jesus died somewhere in between those and one might be rounding up, and another author might be rounding down, especially considering the fact that John uses the word host about to describe when Jesus died. He, he died about or around this hour. So, yeah, there, there's your lengthy answer to that. We could address yeah. each single one of them, but that'd be take way, way too much time.
Yeah, the only other thing I would just add is like like these textual discrepancies that like dad um Rick brings up. It's like like if the do- if the gospels are like historic documents, like I think that's what you'd expect. Like like yes. there's all kinds of discrepancies in all kinds of like historical documents. Like there's there's differing opinions on like how was Julius Caesar killed, like who killed him, like things like that. Like no one disputes that Julius Caesar was killed. Or like there's like different versions of the Gettysburg Address, but no one actually doubts that Abraham Lincoln spoke the Gettysburg Address. So like this discrepancies thing, like it just like it seems like when I when I hear the like these discrepancies, I'm like, well, it just sounds like these people were trying to write down what they actually believed happened instead of just like copying down from the previous person that wrote the previous gospel. And, oh, All right, and let's keep I, going I, to I this have, next. Um, hmm? May I add one short thing? Yeah, As go for, for it. The whether Jesus appeared in Galilee or in Jerusalem, there I just use additive harmonization. The argument is is that in uh, Mark sixteen seven, the angel tells um, the women that he's going to appear in that Jesus is going to appear in Galilee. As Gordon Wenham has pointed out, there's nothing in the text that indicates that they must go immediately to Galilee. In fact, you know, being the pious Jews that they are, they would stay in Jerusalem for the rest of the Passover. So in John, you're just getting the appearances that are occurring um, in Jerusalem for the rest of the Passover week. And then the synoptics uh, like Matthew and Mark are reporting um, the Galilee appearances. So I just use additive harmonization there. Awesome. Okay, uh, let's go to the next clip right now. Was not an eyewitness of Jesus. What's more interesting is Paul never mentioned a bodily resurrection. He even mentioned uh, Paul makes uh, every mention Paul makes of Jesus is either through Scripture or Revelations. First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, I I, had, I handed down to you for first uh, importance what I received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that He was buried, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just gonna skip that for the interest of time. Uh, Galatians 1.11, for I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospels were preached to me uh, or, uh, not by human invention, uh, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it. I received it through Christ. Paul does not seem to have an issue with the physical uh, death and spiritual resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of the threat is the thread that holds all of these things together. So surely there is some evidence that, that, must, that this must have happened. Well, let's talk about that. Awesome. All right, Bram, what do you okay. think of this clip? Oh, I, I think this is a huge mistake on Rick's part. And I'm, I'm going to talk louder because someone in the comments is saying that I'm not loud enough. So I'm going to project yeah, a little yeah. bit more. Um, this is where N.T. Wright comes in handy. It is it is abundantly clear that in the Pauline writings, Paul believes firmly in a bodily resurrection. A few things to consider. Just, just prior evidence, you know, if we're just looking at Paul's background, who he is, he's a Jew. Jews believe firmly that the word resurrection, anastasis, or in the verb, Agero, um, I raise, means uh, a bodily resurrection. It's a bodily phenomenon. Just read something like 2 Maccabees 7. But as for the specific Pauline evidence itself, it's funny that he quotes 1 Corinthians 15, because, and not just that little creed that I think he was talking about in uh, verses 3 through 5 or whatever. If you read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, um, basically, and as well as Second Corinthians five, which is a little harder to exegete, but but Paul's whole thing is he never states explicitly um, this is true. Jesus rose bodily. He states that Jesus rose many times, but but here's how Paul's thought seems to be working. Um, I guess you could put it in a little syllogism, if you will. Um, Paul believed that one. Our general resurrection at the end of the age will be like Jesus's. You can find this in a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, where Paul draws a parallel here. And he believed that the general resurrection was definitely a bodily phenomenon. And so if the general resurrection is like Jesus's resurrection, as Paul says again and again, then... um, he obviously believes that Jesus's resurrection was bodily as well. Um, and not only that, we get bodily continuity in, in our resurrection. Uh, read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 43, uh, verse 43, and so on. Now, th- there is um, one counter objection I'd just like to, you know, uh, clear the way of here, is that Paul does say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you do a word study on um, Paul's use of the word flesh, um, Paul is not talking about corporeality, but mortality. 
And in fact, in the verse that you find that, uh, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul draws a, um, there's a parallelism going on where he says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. So flesh and blood equals perishable, kingdom of God equals imperishable. Again, it, it's not about corporeality, it's about mortality, it's about the decay. That's what the um, he means by flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add because this is out of my, a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But um, yeah, here's the next clip right here. It's it's so this, right now these clips we're playing are right now from Captain Dadpool's opening statement. Um, so here's the last little bit here where he's going to talk about comparing Jesus to other pagan gods. So I just lost my screen. Apologize. We're gonna have to delay for a second. All right, here we go. <coughs> the narrative of the, of the dying and rising again savior god is nothing uncommon in pre-christian history we have zomoxus a thracian deity who died and was resurrected we have romulus a roman demigod who was conceived of a virgin and killed by the senate when uh, he died the earth was covered in darkness his body disappeared and was resurrected he then appeared to his friend Poculus on the road when we uh, we have osiris who was killed by typhon the egyptian equivalent of satan and was hacked to pieces assembled and reassembled the ancient version of when trunks cut frieza into pieces and was put back together we have Dionysus, who, who in some legends was killed and resurrected as a baby and was born of a virgin through a magical potion, to name a few. By the way, some of these members of God, their followers, celebrate, celebrated communion, baptism, and they were told they would receive eternal life. But I'm sure Jesus uh, is the real one. All right. What do you think, Bram, on this clip where he kind of gets into like all the pagan deities and such? Yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like Richard Carrier, doesn't it? Um, mm -hmm. So when I was taking notes for this debate, I went through Zalmoxus and Dionysus and Osiris and Romulus and all that. Um, and I was amazed to find how unlike Jesus these figures were. The problem is I lost my notes. <laughs> I was looking for them <laughs> last night. So, um, <clears throat> but I, I, a few points to make here. Um, someone like Osiris, it's very misleading to say that he was raised from the dead. Osiris went to live in the underworld where the dead were. And, you know, in, in ancient, um, in the ancient, you know, uh, Greek and Roman stories where people from the dead would come back to earth, they're coming back precisely as dead people. And if they, and if people saw visions of these dead people, they wouldn't say, oh, he's been raised back to life. No, he's been raised. Uh, well, you wouldn't even say he's been raised. You just say he's come back as a dead person, right? Um, Zalmoxus, Romulus, Dionysus. There has been a lot of work done. The, the consensus among scholars today is that the category of a dying, rising God is not even a legitimate category. It's a vestige of, you know, early, early 20th century past. Um, as much as I wish I could address each of those individually, I don't have my notes and I don't think I'll have time. So here's what I'll say the main problem with this whole thesis is. It's that it's absurd to posit. It's, not, it's okay to find parallels. Seek and you will find. But to, to say that there's a causal connection between these is, is when you think about it, quite absurd. Um, when you think about the fact of who the early Christians were, they were very Jewish, Jewish to the core. They were debating about Jewish things, circumcision, food laws, what role the works of the law played in salvation and in defining who the people of God were. And to say that these pious Jews would come and, and, um, and plagiarize these, these pagan myths that they abhorred and say, ah, yes, our Lord and Savior and Messiah and Yahweh himself has come down in the form just like these other gods is, well, kind of silly. So that's what I'll say there. Yeah. Don't worry. Just, you know, Bram, don't worry about time. We have plenty of time. Um, but I, I just had a couple of things here. Like, there's a few, like, one of them is just like correlation is not causation. Like, like atheists love to have that meme where it's like, oh, there's 2,500 deities and like um, Christianity is just one. But like, but like if there's 2,500 deities, there's going to be correlations between Jesus and other deities. Like, cause there's so many yeah. different other stories out there. So it's just, it's inevitable. Um, so like, yes, there's correlation, but first you have to show that like that's causation, like that's their burden. Um, and as far as I know, Rick doesn't do that. Um, and you, you brought up the like, why would first century Jews use big pagan texts? Like that's a really good point to bring up. Um, C.S. Lewis is like, he was big on myth. Like he loved myths. Like that was what he did um, before That's he was a Christian. Taught. Yeah. He taught myths and like, he loved these things. And he, what he realized is he didn't come to the conclusion that Jesus was like another, like 
just like a copycat from all these myths. He's like, this is the culmination of all these things. Like, like Lewis read that, like the myths and he's like, this kind of points to Christ and Christ is like the true myth. Cause he actually like existed, rose from the dead, things like that. Um, I guess you can see and, it in some kind of archetypal way like that. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, yeah, cause it's their burden to show that like, it's not just correlation, but causation. And then the other thing I just thought about, like, as you were talking, Bram is like, so I did a little bit of research on like the early Christian apologists in like the second century. Um, yeah. It's like the hundred years after Christ and what they were accused of, um, they're accused of three main things. One of being atheists because they denied all the Roman gods, except for like the Christian God. Um, yeah. Two for being cannibals because of the Lord's supper. They thought they were like eating the actual flesh and three for being incestuous because they were like, you're my brother and sister in Christ. They're like, wait, but how does that work? Um, none of these accusations were that they stole this Jesus figure from all these other pagan gods, which like, If, if, if this like a, if this scheme came about where um they're putting together all these pagan sources to create like this Jesus figure like you think that some of the pagans would have known about this and complained about this like this just isn't a critique of Christianity in the early um in the first century in the second and, century and if you read something like Acts 17 where Paul is preaching in Athens and he's preaching the resurrection of Christ the Stoics and the Epicureans they're not like ah yes this Jesus sounds like our other dying and rising gods. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. we, we haven't he- ever heard of this. So it was it was scandalous to both pagan and Jew. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, do you have anything else you want to add, Bram, before we get into this next clip, which I believe is from um, him cross-examining you or are you cross-examining him? Do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah. Um, it's funny. Later in the debate, I brought up 12 very specific uh, parallels between JFK and Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I remember that. I also mentioned uh, really specific parallels between like uh, uh, the Titanic and a novel um, about a ship that that sank called the Titan mm-hmm. 14 years prior. If you again, seek and you will find like if you're looking for parallels, you will find them. Mm-hmm. That's not sufficient all that all you're proving is that you found a parallel good job you've got to show that there's a causal connection so yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's their burden all right let's look at this next clip um right now so, so they change things at their whim yeah uh let's go to those uh let's Luke talk about the data of the- matthew because matthew has to pick it up Sorry, Kevin, if he wants to know. Uh, let's talk about the date of the Passover. Are you aware that uh, Jesus, a Galilean, would have been using a different calendar for the Passover than the uh, Judean Jewish leaders who were using a uh, who celebrated the Passover on Friday? Yes. Are you aware there's so, another Jesus that was stoned to death on the Passover for teaching uh, uh, apocalypse, and he had five disciples who were also killed? Are you talking about the Jesus that was in AD 62? Because that's after the Jesus in AD 30. I think so. There's like five or six of them. Well, Jesus was um, a common name. Yes, Sue. I mean, yeah. Joseph. That, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, there's no. So you're saying there's there was, there to be reckoned with. So you're saying Mark or Matthew was using a different calendar than Luke was. No, no. I'm saying that John. The, the I'm saying John, that John. Right. Yeah, would be would have been using a the Judean calendar, which is what he mentioned. So there's no they, contradiction there. But they knew each other, and those were written within a decade of each other. What, Except most scholars hold that. Except, are you, do you agree that, mo- that most scholarship holds that John is largely independent of the synoptics? Yeah, because most scholars are Christians. Uh, well, John even, clearly, even John clearly takes from position. Mark, and the yes, but the the independent sources is likely Josephus. Uh, jo- and, why, and what other? Think- because John has uh, evidence. It seems like John used. I don't have a specific with me, but Luke as well seems to have used Josephus and his letters. And as far as the or uh, what other independent sources, that's that's just a claim. What does that mean? How, okay. What are these independent sources? We don't know. It's all it's pure speculation. Uh, it seems a lot more of a speculation to say that Luke is using Josephus, considering that nobody except Richard Carrier actually thinks that. Maybe with the exception of Robert Price, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Robert Price. But that's just that's just an idea. Um, wait, alarm off. Is that, is that not speculation? No, it's, 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 it's connections that have been made. No one's saying that he definitely used Josephus. I was just saying that that's one idea. But besides that, you don't have any other ideas what sources he used. They may have been independent, but we, we have no idea what they are. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, I do want to say before we get your thoughts on this clip, Brand, um, shout out oh. to Dr. Josh. I love that guy. Um, but what are your thoughts on the, this little interaction? That whole clip is painful. The main reason it's it's painful, I'm not being rude here to Rick at all. It's painful because of the way, not only how strongly I disagree with Rick, but the way I defend, defended my position against his. So let me let me start off with a critique of myself. Um, the, the thing about the Passover, you know, me asking, are you aware that Jesus would have been using a Galilean calendar? 
and not a Judean calendar like the the Pharisees would or, or whatever, um, or Sadducees. I can't even remember. Um, that's that's one attempt to harmonize in the Gospel of John the alleged discrepancy um, on the dating of the actual crucifixion. I now think that that harmonization is way too complex and it's a stretch and I don't take it at all. Um, rather, I take the position with Blomberg and other scholars um, that John does not even date, you know, the crucifixion to the Passover. In 1828, I think the Pharisees are uh, standing outside the courtyard trying not to be defiled, not for the Passover meal itself, but for other meals during the, the entire week. Um, because, you know, in John 13, John has already strongly implied that what's being eaten there is a Passover meal. So, and also, the, the evidence that we have, um, I later learned this, the evidence that we have that uh, the Judean calendar and the Galilean calendar, um, that there was a difference is, you know, we have some evidence from Qumran and some evidence from elsewhere, but, you know, to, to try to arrange it such that Jesus would definitely be using this calendar and you know, the Pharisees would be using this calendar, I think, is stretching that, that data a little too much. Um, uh, what else did Rick say? Oh, um, you know, his bringing about another Jesus being stoned mm -hmm. is, was a complete non sequitur. I don't know where that came from. Um, I also don't know what Jesus he's talking about. But even if there was another Jesus, I, I I'll just, you know, trust him here. Jesus Iesu was, again, I already said this, was an extremely common name. Um, read Josephus. Um, messianic pretenders were common. Simon Bar-Giora, bar Kokhba. I mean, nobody denies this. Last thing about Luke using Josephus, not a shred of evidence for it. Um, that, that's, a, that's a really wacky theory, and I think, where, I think where it comes from is that Josephus reports about this Jesus in um, AD 62, named Jesus Ben Ananias. Hmm. And he goes around Jerusalem saying like woe to Jerusalem or something. And then the you know the authorities capture him and then I think they release him. That's in AD 62. So if um well first of all, if Rick wants to say that that uh Luke used Josephus there, he has to say that the earliest gospel Mark was written after AD 62, which I completely reject. I think Acts was written before eighty sixty two, um, so he's got to defend that, um, and also just these vague parallels. Again, they're they're just vague parallels. Uh, there, there's not a shred of evidence that Josephus uses, um, or excuse me, that the Gospels use Josephus, and you know that he accuses me of speculation. That is certainly speculation. Mm -hmm. It is not speculation. Um, contra Rick to say that John is independent of the synoptics that's just that's not just an opinion of Christian scholars that has been held for a while ever since you know C.H. Dodd wrote in the 60s um, historical tradition the fourth gospel um, and then what I mean by that is that John is literarily independent of the synoptics all you have to do is read John to figure that out so yeah yeah I would just say like it seems like Ricky like, he has to add a lot of, like, auxiliary hypotheses. Um, so, like, what that means is, like, for example, like, in I just did a debate with Emerson Green on the problem of evil. Um, and one of the things he talked about was how, like, with the problem of evil, like, the Christian has to give some sort of, like, theodicy or defense. And it's like, well, when you have to do that, it adds these hypotheses, which make your your idea be less likely to be true. Um, and, yeah. you know, we could talk about, like, the merits of that. But, like, with regards to, like, what Rick's doing, he's doing the exact same thing is, like, kind of what I did, except I think even more unsubstantiated, where he's just adding all these things where it's, like, well, it's po of course it's possible that Rick's right, but like, what's the best explanation? Because um, he had all these things that aren't supported by the data, um, but you know, like there's these correlations, but we don't know if they're causation. Like, it just seems like he used to add all the stuff to his to his work to yeah to, 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 get, his, to get his ideas to run. Um, and I'll also say this: it's kind of funny. Um, a guy I'm in a group chat chat with named Caleb Jackson, who's wrote a book called Undead. Um, Caleb Jackson, he pointed this out. He's like. You know, New Testament scholars like to, to, to say all the time that, that here the Gospels contradict Josephus because Josephus reports one thing and then 
the Gospels report another. And then where the Gospels sound like Josephus, the Gospels are using Josephus. So, I mean, yeah. that And, and by the way, I, I think that Mark was written sometime in the 50s and Luke um, before AD 62. It has to, mm-hmm. Luke had to be written before Acts, and I think Acts, given the way it ends, has to be written before AD like, 64 or whatever, whenever uh, Paul's martyrdom is. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I just I just completely reject the idea that the Gospels could even be using Josephus at this point. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, you ready to get to this next clip, Brian? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Um, this should be a fun clip talking about um, Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, yeah. Invention. Why not make uh, uh, Peter, for example, bury Jesus? And furthermore, I think this explains the fact that as the Gospels progress— Joseph becomes more Christian and less Jewish. Okay. Um, are you aware that there's a story in Genesis that parallels Joseph of Arimathea? Um, you can find a million parallels in anything. I can find 12 very specific well, parallels between well, JFK and Abraham Lincoln. It doesn't prove anything. Th- this is the narrative that Joseph, it didn't even change the name brand. Joseph begged the king or era to give him the body of his father uh, so he could bury it in a grave that he purchased. It's the exact same story. He doesn't even change the name. It's still Joseph. Except Joseph. So are you, was, are you saying I, this is a weird coincidence? Yeah, I mean, there, I can give you like I have like five examples written down of a bunch of weird coincidences. You have to show evidence that there's an actual causal connection between these. I mean, Joseph was the second most common Jewish Palestinian male name. Uh, I don't see how this is any uh, any argument against what I'm saying. The causal or, or um, the causal connection is that we called it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the causal connection is the Gospels are fan fiction, basically. And what makes you think that? Because most historians— Because of the stark number of parallels from the Old Testament, Joseph of Arimathea being one of well, several. I, again, I doubt those—you can find parallels between anything. You have to establish a causal connection. Um, I can—again, uh, th- there's a remarkable parallel between the Titanic and a, in a, in a book called The Titan written in a novel 14 years prior. There, there's no evidence that there's a causal connection. Surely you wouldn't say that therefore the Titan is ripping off – that the story of the Titanic is not historical and is ripping off this novel 14 years prior, prior about the Titan. See, I, I personally disagree because I don't believe in coincidences. I think this was intentional, but that's just me. So where is, where is Arimathea? So to be consistent, wouldn't you have to argue – well, I should be – I shouldn't be answering the questions. Well, I would, the way I would reply to that is to be consistent. I think you'd have to also say that the Titanic was ripped off the, uh, no, the novel 14 years prior. It has nothing to do with this. Sure, but I don't, I don't have to assume every connection is true you, uh, so for, for every Jesus. single topic ever. So why are you I can pick and choose based on how similar they are, and I find okay. that the fact his name is still Joseph, and the fact that Arimathea does not seem to be a real place. Arimathea, no Arimathea is – I would say that Arimathea is a real place. We've been able to identify the etymology behind the word. If you yeah, look at first, if you look at first like Maccabees – kind of a believer, right? No, that's a Richard Carrier lie. If you look at first Maccabees uh, chapter 11, verse 34 – you, you see the town mentioned, and it's uh, clearly a Greek Septuagint translation of a town, I think it's called Rathaim, mentioned in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Okay, um, lots of fun stuff here with Ooh, regards yeah. to uh, Joseph and Thea. So what do you think, Bram? Okay, I'm going to start by critiquing myself again. Um, my argument for one, – one strong argument that uh, Craig uses for – um, the existence of Joseph of Arimathea and for the burial tradition in general is one that he gets from a, a scholar in the night in like 1994 uh, named Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown wrote a two volume commentary on the passion narratives. And when he gets to the burial section, he has this interesting quote about it's inconceivable that, you know, uh, that Christians, you know, given the early hostility between the Sanhedrin and the early Christians, that they would invent um, a Sanhedrin Jew to do what is right by Jesus. I think that's right. But Brown also goes on to argue that as the Gospels progress, um, Joseph gets more Christian and less and less Sanhedrinish. Um, I disagree with him there. Uh, now I've I've changed my position on that. And the reason, so Brown argues that you know the earliest Gospel we have, um, Joseph is just described as a man seeking the kingdom of God. And if you look at Mark chapter 12, the lawyer who comes to Jesus is also described as a man seeking um, seeking the kingdom of God or, or near the kingdom of God or something like that. And he says, look, you know, the Gospels aren't the Gospels aren't portraying this lawyer man as a as a Christian or a secret disciple. Uh, so why should we think that Joseph of Arimathea is being portrayed in this way? 
here's the thing in Mark 12, I think what you're getting is a very clear narrative contrast between the, the, the lawyer who does understand Jesus versus the other, you know, scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees who try to, um, who, who reject Jesus and, and, and go on with their, um, practices based on oral tradition and stuff like that. So, and now if you go back to the, to the, um, Joseph of Arimathea narrative, the way Mark describes Joseph is a very weird thing to, to, to say about him, unless, you know, what the other gospels make more explicit is true. So I think Mark presupposes, um, that Joseph is some kind of disciple of Jesus or sympathetic to Jesus. I don't really think that there's any, um, I don't think that Joseph becomes more Christian or anything like that. So that's the, that's what I would say. Um, but this idea that Rick is espousing that Genesis 50, um, where Joseph asked Pharaoh, um, you know, to go bury his father, um, that that is being used by the gospel authors to fabricate this Joseph of Arimathea narrative. I think it's patently false. Read Genesis 50 for yourself. The parallels, basically the only parallel is that the name is Joseph. Hmm. That That's basically it. I mean, contra Rick, um, the, Joseph does not go ask Pharaoh for the body. Or, or, or um, in contra Rick, he doesn't talk about a, a tomb that he purchased himself. Um, rather, Pharaoh goes, I mean, excuse me, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and just asks if he can bury his father, and his father had already cut the tomb out for himself. And there's so many, uh, everything else in the narrative is totally different. Seven, uh, 70 days of mourning, um, for example, which is a very Egypt, Egyptian burial thing. Hmm. Um, uh, lots of people are there mourning and, and, and stuff like that. I mean... I think really the only parallel you can find there is that his name was Joseph. So, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of surprised that he used that. So, yeah. Yeah, one of the things I appreciate is, is like you bringing that up and being like, well, the second most common name is was Joseph. So it's not like it's something that was like unexpected um, for someone that was like going to bury Jesus. Like that's, yeah. Um, do you anything more, I think, more I, think I might have been yeah. wrong there. It might It might be Joshua. I think I, I think I made a mistake there, but nonetheless, okay. Joseph was an extremely common name, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like taking exactly. two passages about um, some guy named Bill, and then, you know, based on that, saying, well, one clearly had an influence on the other, or, or mm-hmm. I guess to be more fair to to his point, uh, two passages about Bill biking down a road um, that goes to his house, and everything else in the narrative is different saying well one clearly presupposes the other so you know mm-hmm. yeah i think it gets back to that thing like just because there's correlations does not mean that it's like a causation like that's mm-hmm. rick's burden to show that there is causation um let's get into this next clip which is all about the mormons awesome they all make the same claim that coll- uh, corroborates with each other that they saw the angel moroni so why is it you think that uh they're or, or would you say that they're they're lying, but the second, third, fourth hand accounts of Jesus' resurrection that we get from non eyewitness testimony that that is is the is, is true. Yeah, I'll I mean, answer that first. Let me apologize for interrupting you. I'm kind of on an adrenaline rush right now. But um, uh, the we know uh, Zach, yes, we know a lot about these alleged yeah. eyewitnesses. We also know that they. Um, yeah. So the and the reason I asked you to stop right there is because I mean my answer is okay. I'd just like to give a full answer to this now. Um. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't want to waste time on on the answer I gave, which was shaky. Um, all right. So when it comes to Mormonism, first he says that the the Gospels aren't eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, we're going to talk about that later, I think, because we have a time marked out for that. Yeah, I disagree with that out. completely. I think that's totally wrong. Um, but I mean, let's talk about Mormonism for a second. Um, a few things to say here. The, generally speaking, there are like three claims about Joseph Smith and ha- and the origin of Mor- Mormonism that the Mormon apologist needs to back up. Um, the first one is that in 1820, Joseph had a visit from God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, who told him that all churches were false and he shouldn't join any of them. 
we know this has to be false. It has to be false because the first mention of a first vision doesn't come until about uh, 22 years later in 1842. And that in itself is not bad, but the earlier sources explicitly deny that this could have happened because after the uh, vision allegedly occurred, Joseph then joins a Methodist church. And in his own publication before 1842, he writes about how after his family joined a Presbyterian church in 1823, he began to seek religion and pray even if some supreme being existed. And that's a quote, if some supreme being existed. Um, quite a weird thing to do if you just received a vision from God the Father and the Son Jesus Christ himself. Um, the second claim is that Joseph Smith um, received visits from the angel Moroni, um, who apparently gives him a record of his people who live uh, 1,400 years earlier in America. And then later he claims to have received these records on golden plates in this weird language that nobody can read, which he calls Reformed Egyptian. Hmm. Already there's a disanalogy here. Whereas for the empty tomb, you have something which was in Jerusalem, and you have the apostles first proclaiming their resurrection in Jerusalem. You have the opportunity for open inquiry. The Sanhedrin could have gone, Joseph who buried Jesus, could have gone to that tomb, because the tomb was known, that's what I argue, and seen if the bones or body was still there. Um, as for this, I mean, Joseph's claim is completely unfalsifiable, and there's no open inquiry there. I mean, you know, uh, it was written in a language that nobody can understand, um, and on plates that nobody could see, because apparently he already gave it back to the angel Moroni before anybody can, can look at him. Um, and the third claim is that there are eyewitnesses in the Book of Mormon who signed to the truth of what they saw, um, and most of them recanted. Or, excuse me, most of the men who claimed this left the church. Three of them recanted. Um, there is not a shred of evidence that any of the apostles um, left the church, or, or you know, despite their... Um, despite the extreme hostile environment they were in. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say. Hmm. Um, do you want to keep playing the rest of this Mormon clip, or did you get, get to say, like, do we not have to go through your defense? Um, yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to. I mean, my defense, it's, it's basically, um, I only said a shred of what I already said, so that, I mean, I'm just using this opportunity to bring about my fuller defense of that, which I could have done a much better job on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bram, unfortunately, you're not perfect. So, yep. Um, I appreciate, like, <laughs> all right, we have this next clip queued up, and this is going to be talking about um, who wrote the Gospels, like that, all that fun mm. stuff that comes along with the territory. Yeah. Because we have no idea how the Gospels were written or who wrote them. We know who did. Uh, we're relying on oral tradition. Uh, we're highly educated. Um, oh, okay. So, each Gospel copied from the other and added in their own corrections or elaborations. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true with the Gospel of John. That's largely true with about 85% of the synoptics, I think. But um, wh why in that case would you reject uh, the testimony of Papias in the early 2nd century saying that Mark was written by John Mark, um, who, you know, being – I think he was a di diaspora Jew. He would have been competent in Greek and Aramaic and probably Hebrew, uh, who is a follower of Peter and wrote, wrote Mark based on Peter's testimony. And where did Papias get his information? Uh, well, I mean, oh, uh, uh, John the Elder, and um, I can't remember the other guy, but Richard Balcom lays out uh, in chapter two of his book. Yeah, but uh, in Jesus case, and eyewitnesses. The, but again, what what eyewitnesses? There aren't any. Like you, you have to believe that like the uh, Ephraim uh, uh, story or something is. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that what we have about this. Okay, um, <laughs> it's funny. He, well, okay. Um, to return to the to the to the Papias question. The eyewitnesses that, that Papias cites are John the Elder and a guy named Aristion. Um, and he, he describes them as uh, people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Um, I have my copy of Eusebius back there. I should have prepared to, to read the actual passage from Papias. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, Papias, who was living around Hierapolis at the time, um, whenever he was writing, as Balcom argues, was probably compiling a lot of this information around the 80s or 90s. Um, 
and yeah, so he could he could he was he was compiling this information within living memory of the eyewitnesses. I'd like to see how he how he responds to that kind of evidence rather than just blankly asserting there were no eyewitnesses. You know that that's what surprises me. Um, so there's that. We have the testimony of Papias, but that's a shred. That's just one shred of the evidence. There's a lot more. Um, and by the way, Papias is evidence that um, Peter um, uh, was the source of information for Mark's gospel. Um, coheres very well with the, the the structural layout of Mark's gospel. Peter is like at the center of it, you know, narratively speaking. Um, what else? You know, in the Gospel of John, the evidence that we have, both external and internal, that John, son of Zebedee, the eyewitness of Jesus, one of the twelve who wrote the Gospel, is very strong. We have um, Irenaeus, we have uh, Polycrates, Theophilus of Antioch, we have the, um, the Moratorian Canon. Um, we have, uh, I mean, we have so much evidence. I, I wish I had a list with me right now. I'm just rattling off the top of my head. Um, and I think the internal evidence of John's gospel coheres with that very strong external patristic evidence as well. Um, so, I mean, I don't think he can su substantiate his claim at all that the gospels don't have eyewitness material behind them. I think they're mostly eyewitness material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, the one thing I was just kind of like wondering about is, uh, you brought up Papias. Like, doesn't like Eusebius call like Papias stupid or something? Like, do you think that could yep. hurt your case, Graham? No, it. Um, no. It, <laughs> all right. Do you know the reason why he calls him stupid? I've heard it. I just forget it. Eusebius calls him stupid because of his views on eschatology, and on his huh. on his interpretation of the Book of Revelation. He obviously thinks he's reliable enough, um, you know, as a historian to pass down faithfully the, the eyewitness traditions. Otherwise, he wouldn't have quoted them. And um, by the way, when, when Papias, I, I think Eusebius's exegesis of Papias is very biased. A lot of scholars have followed Eusebius in, in distinguishing between someone called John the Elder and, and, and John, son of Zebedee. I think the only reason. Um, Eusebius makes that distinction um, is because that way he can attribute the book of Revelation, which he was not fond of, to some other John the Elder who wasn't an actual disciple or apostle. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, ready for this final clip here on um, yeah. the mass grave idea? All right, mm -hmm. so this is from the Q&A section. Um, I encourage you, obviously, we're just skimming the very brief parts of this debate. So the link's down below if you want to see this full debate. It's a really good debate. Um, but here's this last part that we're going to play in this debate review. I'm a former Christian, Nicole says. Not anything right now, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on the mass grave versus tomb. That's uh -huh. new to me. Yeah. So um, one argument, say, for people like John Dominic Crossan or Bart Ehrman, uh, well, new Bart Ehrman, not old Bart Ehrman, is that given that Romans would often bury their uh, – I don't like – not even bury, dump their crucifixion victims in mass graves, that creates this kind of intrinsic improbability of the um, Christian burial story of Jesus. Um, very improbable. But um, in fact, we have many, many examples in history of G uh, Romans making exceptions for this. Look at uh, this, what G Josephus writes in his Jewish War. The Jews are so, and this is during uh, is this the first Jewish revolt? The Jews are so careful about funeral rites that even those who are crucified because they were found guilty are taken down and buried before sunset. And as Craig Evans points out, only Romans had the power to crucify in Judea and Samaria, and the Jews are the ones burying because they're making a reference to Deuteronomy 21. Um, we have archaeological evidence in 1968. We found a uh, the bones of a Jewish man named Johann, um, who was a crucifixion victim in a Jewish tomb. Uh, take it from the Roman Digesta. The bodies of those who are – which is a Roman law book, by the way. The bodies of those who are condemned to death should not be refused their relatives, and the divine Augustus – and Augustus is uh, served around uh, a few years before Jesus' time. And the divine Augustus in the tenth book of his life said that, said that this rule had been observed. At present, the bodies of those who have been punished are only buried when this has been requested and permission granted, and sometimes it is not permitted, especially where persons have been convicted of high treason. Jesus didn't commit high treason. Even the bodies of those who have been sentenced to be burned can be claimed in order that their bones and ashes, after having been collected, may be buried. 
Uh, one more from the Roman Digestive. The bodies of persons who have been punished should be given to whoever requests them for the purpose of burial. So there are uh, Roman uh, laws about burial were actually more flexible than most than Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan suppose. That's why they're taking the minority position. Um, GE, I can I can see your brain splitting right now. Would you like to say anything? Brim, do you want us to play this John? I didn't know where you want me to pause here. Do you want me to play what John says in reply? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, right. I like his comment here. Okay, just let me know when you need me to stop. Okay. Well, I, I feel like the over-reliance on New Testament scholarship is um, uh, way, way overplayed here, um, which, uh, I, just I mean... It in passing. Huh? I just mentioned it in passing. I gave the actual evidence. Well, yeah, I, I know that you gave the actual evidence. I just, I don't see how it adds anything to, like, like, your evidence, like for for me at least, this is just me. Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear somebody be like, "Oh, this is a minority position or whatnot," it's just kind of like a "so what" thing. Okay, and yeah. Like, I, yeah. I want to. I want to. Thank you for saying that. I actually want to. All right. What What are your thoughts on this clip here, Brian? Well, let me start with the GE thing. Uh, Godless engineer. I find it funny that he accuses me of being overly reliant on New Testament scholarship, and then later brags on how Carrier's book is peer reviewed. mm Hmm. Why should that matter on his view? I mean, hmm. I, I mean, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. I mean, people with PhDs who have studied this stuff all their life, who generally agree on con- on a conclusion, that is itself indirect evidence for that conclusion. It is. Um, now, if that's all you're relying on, that's poor research. You have to look at the specific evidence, and I have absolutely no problem um, with. You know, just rejecting all the scholarly consensus, blah blah. When I think the the specific evidence is just completely contrary to that, I take that position on something like uh, John, in my opinion, not actually moving the the crucifixion to Passover. Um, lots of New Testament scholars, even evangelicals, disagree with me there. So I I just kind of yeah I I thought that was. Mm-hmm. I do think like like the consensus has to like I mean obviously like I agree, like I think like John's right to the point where like you can't just rely on the consensus like yeah, obviously yeah. it's true but then like it gives some credence to it like you know like mm-hmm. the majority of scientists believe in climate change gives some credence in my mind to climate change yeah. um the vast just about every scientist agreeing that the earth is not 6,000 years old gives to me credence to think that young earth creationism is false um, you can say the same thing about really any, like it gives, cre- it doesn't like prove it by any means, but it gives credence yeah. to think that like the majority is probably right. Not definitely right, but it gives you credence to think it's true. And I'm surprised to use the phrase over reliance or I was, I was over relying on something. I spent all that time going through the specific evidence, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking um, about the Jewish, the, Jew- the Jewish text, right? Um, I went through, uh, Roman, Wait, what did I go through? I went through Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, in the Roman law book called the Digesta. Because the argument that Rick is um, using, which uh, people like John Dominic Cross and, and, and now, more recently, Bart Ehrman have, have um, argued, is that Romans did not, um, generally speaking, put their um, crucifixion victims in tombs. They put them in mass graves. That's right, mm-hmm. obviously. I mean, well, obviously. I say obviously. That's not obvious to everyone. Yes, I mean everybody agrees with that. The problem is that's just a prior concern. I mean that if you're, I was amazed when I read Bart Ehrman's book where he does a treatment of the burial. He only mm-hmm. assesses the burial in light of prior concerns like that one. But um, the disanalogy between the burial of Jesus and, and the burial of most Roman crucifixion victims is that a it's not a Roman doing, you know, taking uh, a crucifixion victim down from the cross and throwing them to a mass grave. It's a it's a Sanhedrin Jew who has a special fondness for Jesus, burying Jesus himself. So when it comes to a passage like in Josephus, which I which I cited, where doing during one of the Jewish revolts against Rome, um, the, Rome allows them to bury their own crucifixion victims. In light of what they were, um, their own law told them to do, Deut- Deuteronomy twenty-one verses twenty-two through twenty-four, or something like that. Um, 
that kind of situation is is the evidence we need to look for when assessing um, how the gospel burial coheres with other ancient evidence, right? Hmm. And I, I just wanted to play that clip, not because I have much to say about it, but just because um, I think that's a common, I hear that argument all the time. Well, you know, they were put in mass graves, but we had so much specific evidence that many, many exceptions were made um, for Jewish people to follow their law as laid out in Deuteronomy. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, that's the end of our clips, Bram. Do you have anything you want to, anything else you want to bring up with regards to this debate or the resurrection or anything else um, before we start to wrap up here? Um. I'd like to, this, this, um, a lot of this has been very critical of Rick, but I'd like to, um, thank Rick a lot for, um, doing the debate with me and I appreciate the dialogue we had and I feel like, you know, these kind of Christian atheist or, you know, Christian, non-Christian dialogues are exactly what need to happen, you know, in order to get to what's most important, namely truth. Um, so I'm really grateful to him for, for accepting to debate, you know, a 17 year old. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I had fun. Yeah, dude, you're, you're insane. You're 17. You're like balling out doing all these debates and, <laughs> um, going after one of the biggest TikTok atheists out there. Um, and I, if Rick does listen to this, he's really cool. I like him. He gets a lot, he, he's very valuable because he like, he brings up a lot of important points, like with regards to like, yeah. the resurrection or the Old Testament. Like it's really helpful. Um, Cause he's not just like, at least from my experience, it's not just like these things I've heard a million times. Like he's really thoughtful. Um, so I appreciate Rick and like yeah. these dialogues are important and it's about truth. And hopefully this can help people in their journey and just owning their journey and seeking truth. Um, Bram, to wrap things up here, um, how can people connect with you, follow you in case they want to do that um, and see who, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I don't know. I, I was trying to think of some like young sports star and like the Bram Rollins of a Paul Jacks. But like, how can people connect with you or follow you? Um, you can follow me on TikTok uh, at Bram Rawlings one. There's my apologetics TikTok. But um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Bram Rawlings. But I mostly play guitar videos there, so you don't need to do that. Um, are we are we taking questions by the way, Zach? Or, or um, no? I didn't. I did not. We can if we want. Um, if people have questions, I think there's actually one that now that you brought it up earlier. Um, I'm trying to find it. Um, so we'll, I'll find that question. And if you're listening now, we'll take a little bit of questions for like 15 minutes. Um, okay. Questions. Yep. Um, the question here was the question from Kyle, which said, um, why think Christian opponents would have looked for the body? Um, because one, I think they had access to the tomb. Um, after all, a Sanhedrin member buries Jesus. Uh, in his own tomb. And by the way, the Mishnah actually um, tells Sanhedrin members that they need to provide uh, tombs for for crucif- uh, for victims like this. Um, but also, you know, consider this. The apostolic proclamation of the resurrection first occ- occurred in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified and buried. And the tomb was known, as I argue, um, if they had, you know, gone into the tomb and found anything reminiscent of a body, the whole movement could have been shut down like that. Also, more specifically, um, the Matthean polemic in, uh, I think it's Matthew 7, where Matthew tells this story about how um, the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders go to Ah, uh, Zach, can you help me out here? What's the what's the story? The Jewish leader? Well, uh the the Matthean polemic. Do you know about that? No. I'm blanking on it. Even though I've I've read it so many times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know this stuff more than me. I'm anyway, know, in, let's just say in Matthew twenty seven or twenty eight, I can't quite remember. Matthew seems to be um re- polemically refuting this idea that the um the Jewish leaders had brought up that the disciples stole the body the question is why would they say the disciples stole the body um if the tomb was already known and they could have gone there presumably because the tomb was empty that kind of um that kind of objection to the resurrection is exactly what you'd have if the tomb was empty it presupposes that um so yeah i think given those points we have very good reason to think that uh, the first thing they would go do is check out to see if that tomb was empty or not. 
Um, is it Matthew 27, as TJ says in the chat? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, TJ has a question which says, um, was, Joseph, was Joseph Tomb new? Um, maybe it was Oprah that gave it away, as Kyle suggests. Um, what are your thoughts here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I see absolutely no reason to think that uh, the Gospels here are inventing details. Why would... Um, I think it's Matthew that says the that the tomb was new. I want to be careful about that. I'm shaky on on those kind of details about which detail was found in which gospel. So I'm just gonna forget I said that. I could be right, but just for risk, you know, I'm gonna yeah forget it. Um, <laughs> what? How would that help out the evangelists in any way by by saying that the tomb was new? Would that somehow remove the shame of the burial or something? And um, if so, why should we think that they would have, you know, be willing to remove the, to remove restraints on the historical reportage in order to clean it up and make, you know, the, the burial less shameful when they don't do that for the crucifixion, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I think the tomb was new. Mm. Um. All right, I think that's all the questions we have, Bram. So I have a question for you. Um, okay. If you're on a deserted island and you only had one book and it couldn't be about New Testament scholarship at all, what would it be? I mean, does does the Bible count? No, no, that's not okay. Uh, man, uh, it can't be about New Testament scholarship, and it can't be about Old Testament scholarship either. Uh, you do realize, like, that's my entire shelf, right? Um. <laughs> I'm here to destroy you with questions. Mm. Let me take a peek at my bookshelf really quick. Um, <laughs> literally, all I see is New Testament scholarship. Let me think about this. Oh, maybe um, maybe this one. The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Mm, it's a good book. I love yeah, love this book. It's That's a, good a question um, to think about. That just shows I need to read. Uh, I need to read more things like outside my little New Testament bubble. But yeah, you got to read. I just started reading the classics. Like I like I'm trying to read like ancient author, authors more, or not ancient, like people that are dead. It's like I just read like George Orwell's 1984. Now I'm reading like um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, yeah. and just like, yeah. and I'm gonna read Eusebius next. Just like it's really how interesting. Um, but yeah, um, you one see, last Eusebius? question. Yeah, I'm hopefully going to read that um, after oh, okay. I leave in a couple of weeks. So I haven't gotten there yet. Um, um, Charles says, probably our last question, do you believe Paul quotes Luke and Corinthians like Jay Warner Wallace suggests? Wallace suggests that? No, no, I, I don't think that at all. I think, um, no, I, I think uh, that Paul is quoting a uh, an important piece of oral tradition that has, is circulating in the early church that is really well-preserved. Um and that uh, Luke also quotes, and, and that, that oral tradition comes from the Last Supper. I don't think that Paul is quoting um, qu uh, quoting Luke there. Though in 1st in, uh, in or 2nd Timothy, though, Paul does, um, I believe, quote Luke 10, verse 7, where he says the worker deserves his wages. And interestingly enough, he calls that scripture. So... Hmm. Uh, that's a fascinating piece of information if you want to get into the study of the formation of canon. So, I, yeah. Um, uh, what just happened, Zolio Gamer? Um, we just had a fun time talking about the resurrection. Um, well, do you have a life first, Bram? Mm. I, living my Christian life, I always have verses that stick with me and that I remember. Um, let me think about this one. Interestingly enough, I, I can't really think of one right now, but I always, I'm, I'm always having, like whenever I'm making decisions, I'm always having some kind of verse floating around. Um, but I, I couldn't reduce it to just one. Or maybe, um, maybe something... Well, actually, the one on my shirt, you know, uh, it's uh, Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11, you know, uh, where Paul, some people call it the Messiah hymn. And I just, it, it's about the um, the humiliation and the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. 
Uh, and if you read that, that's just an incredible verse. That one's that one's on my mind a lot. So I guess I guess you could say I have um, a life passage. I would I would probably be that one. Mm, that's good. Um, we'll do one more question, and then we got to wrap things up here. Um, yep. From Susan, um, a patron. Thank you, much, Susan. Um, she says, mm. "Do you think Matthew was the first written gospel in Hebrew or Aramaic, and later put into Greek? So did Matthew not depend on Mark or Q if it existed?" Um, do you have any thoughts here, Brown? That's a very difficult question. The reason <laughs> being because our Greek text of Matthew does not read like translation Greek, and we can recognize translation Greek uh, from Aramaic in Hebrew if he did write it. Um, so here's one possibility. I think the patristic evidence is strong enough to uh, for us to believe that Matthew did compile something, a gospel or some sayings of Jesus in Hebrew or Aramaic before Mark did. Um, whether Matthew himself wrote the Greek text of Matthew, I'm not sure. Um, there's a scholar named Theodore Zahn, I think, that suggests that Matthew wrote two Gospels, one in Hebrew or Aramaic and one in Greek. That might make sense if, as Craig Keener points out, that um, ancient biographies often went through different drafts and stuff, that uh, Josephus might have compiled you know, his first draft of uh, either the War of the Jews or Antiquities in one language, and then wrote it in Greek and had a scribe clean it up. So that's one possibility. Um, but in the end, I I don't know who wrote. I'm I'm not very confident that Matthew himself wrote the the um, Greek text of Matthew. I'm not confident that he didn't. Uh, I just I just don't know. But I do. Yeah, I do think he compiled something in Hebrew or Aramaic before Mark, which it could be Q. That's one suggestion. But maybe not. So it, it's it gets you know kind of speculative at this point. Well, that's about all the time we have, Bram. So thank you so much for coming on today and reviewing the space. Yep. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Anything you want to say before we part off for the day? Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's been a blast. Um, yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and I encourage everyone if you're listening to this, um, the debate is linked down below. Really good debate, worth listening to. Um, and yeah, I'm sure this will be the first of many times we chat Bram. So it'll be a lot of fun. Um, thank yep. you everyone who tuned in. Um, Randolph, Noah, Zolio, Susan, um, everyone else. Have a good one and God bless.